Almighty God, whose blessed Son was led by the Spirit to be tempted by Satan, come quickly to help us who were assaulted by many temptations. And as you know the weaknesses of each of us, let each one find you mighty to save. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. That's the collect appointed for today, March the 6th, 2022, the first Sunday in Lent. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. Uh, it's hard to figure out how to describe this week. I mean, the parts of the week were good, but then I've got a good friend named Ricky who I would absolutely appreciate it very much if you pray, keep Ricky in your prayers. He needs a miracle. Uh, I don't want to go too much into detail, but he needs a miracle if he's going to live. It, it's shocking. We were on the phone a week ago. I'm taping this on Friday, and so we were on, he and I were on the phone a week ago. Uh, as he was going to the doctor, and then while he was at the hospital, because they sent him there, um, and then he's been in intensive care ever since then. He's younger than I am. He has already survived tuberculosis and some strange uh, virus that went to his brain a few years ago and nearly killed him. And so we know that he's a God of miracles, and so we just pray that, that the Lord would work a miracle here and and restore my brother to health. I've also got a friend named Linda, and she and her husband both, I believe, I'm not sure about her yet, but um, he has COVID, and he's diabetic, and so there's a lot of concern in that. Um, got another friend who's going in the hospital for the, over the weekend um, because of some issues that she's having, and so it's just been that kind of a week. It seems like every time I turn around, that there was you know I was getting bad news from some quarter in my life, uh, but at the same time, we had a wonderful dinner with friends one night this week. We're having dinner with another friend tonight. Um, and then looking forward to having dinner with some other friends next Wednesday. And so it's been, you know, kind of an up and down week, um, so much so that I just felt a little bit overwhelmed and confused, to be honest with you, about everything that was going on. I couldn't get my head around everything. And so I took a week off from the gym and trying to get sort of into some uh, place where, where I can understand and know exactly how to pray about things you know then we've got this whole thing with ukraine and russia going on and it feels like the world's gone mad and spinning out of control and you've got people like lindsey graham uh trying to encourage somebody to kill the head of russia and it's just i have no idea what people are thinking when they say things like that especially our leaders it's just bizarre to say the least and so anyway it, it's been a very strange week and and i'm Looking forward to next week being better, frankly. Um, so anyway, we, we other than that, nothing exciting going on. Um, so this week, as we begin Lent, not surprisingly, we're going to talk about temptation because you know you you probably if you're if you're um, participating in Lent, then then you've given something up or you've taken on a new discipline or something like that. You've you've added something to your life or taken away from your life in order that you can get closer to the Lord, and so. I, I want you to to understand why we talk about the temptation of Jesus the first week. If you've ever had a successful moment in ministry, if you've ever been, you know, I mean, I, I remember when I went to Haiti. I can remember other times in my life when when I feel like, uh, you know, I was just I, I was so close to the Lord and, and and He was very near. And then all this other stuff, you know, and and so you've seen great things happen. You saw a miracle happen or whatever. And then literally five minutes later, you're getting hammered from somewhere you know it, it's, it's just always seems to go that way it's like well something wants to steal your joy and you just can't let it is the main thing but it, it's what happens here with jesus um he 
he goes out into the wilderness uh, right after the baptism when the voice from heaven proclaimed him um, as my beloved son, the one in whom I'm well pleased. So the, um, he immediately goes out into the wilderness, driven there by the Spirit, in order to be tempted by Satan. And so we, it's something we need to know and, then, uh, and know how to deal with. We need to expect it, honestly. Um, in the Old Testament lesson, we're looking at, at, at God speaking into what will become a temptation for them and saying, here's an antidote for temptation. And then, and then Paul speaks kind of about do-it-yourself spirituality or rely on yourself spirituality that would um, that's a temptation always 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 um, so let's take a look at these lessons what we have today is um, the Deuteronomy passages Deuteronomy 26 1 to 11 and then Paul's going to quote in his in the passage we're going to read from Romans Paul's going to quote from Deuteronomy 30 Jesus is going to quote from Deuteronomy 6 or 4 4 um, and so what we get is, is that it begins with this instruction. <clears throat> when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it into a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. <clears throat> so this is instruction that Moses is giving to the people out in the wilderness. Now, I've, I've said this before. I typically tend to say it on the daily podcast. The reminder about Deuteronomy, what it is, it, Deuteronomy means history, actually. And so what we get is um, sort of Moses' valedictory address. You know, this is right before he dies. He's going to tell them all these things, and he, he's going to be a little bit cynical because he knows the people. He knows they're a stiff-necked people. He knows how prone they are to wandering. He knows from the experience of the golden calf. He's probably got that not just in the back of his mind as he t- says these things, but in the front of the mind, because what, what, what was it that happened that precipitated the making of the golden calf? Well, it was they thought Moses had died, and so they, they were concerned that they would no longer have a representative before God. They didn't apparently have any confidence in Aaron at all. And especially not that he could go and be with the Lord. And the reason would be that Moses is the one who did it. I mean, he was the representative of the people before the Lord. And they were, they were concerned that, that anybody else wouldn't have the standing with God to approach him and, and would probably be killed. And so they, they see Moses as this uh, demigod, I guess is probably the easiest and, and clearest way to say it. They've, they've made Moses into a demigod over time because he was able to go and meet with the Lord and authenticated himself with the signs that the Lord gave him before he went back to Egypt the first time. So th- they're concerned probably that if he's gone, well, who's going to represent us before the Lord and the Lord to us? Who's going to take his place? So it, Joshua is the one who does, but he, he's concerned about the people. He's concerned about once they get into the land, that prosperity will, will take them away from the Lord. And so he's, he's telling them here that what they're supposed to do when they get into the land, and then it becomes something they do every year, is they take some of the first fruit of the ground, which you harvest from the land, put it in a basket, and go to the place where the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. So where the temple is, ultimately. And you should go to the priest who's in office at that time and say to him, I mean, it's funny because he could have said you go to Aaron, but he said, no, you're going to go to the priest that's in office at that time because Aaron ain't going to be here forever. 
So he says, go to the priest in office at that time, say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you'll make a response before the Lord your God. So there's this this interplay of dialogue between the priest and the farmers who have brought this produce into the temple. And as the ceremony developed a long time over a period of time you got you know they're commanded to come and do this and so they would come to the festival and so they would gather as they came and so people would come from disparate parts of the uh, of the land and they would come together and then they would they would bring all these gifts together and bring them to the uh, priest and the people would be it was a joyous occasion because the Lord had blessed them. He had blessed the agricultural efforts of the farmers to raise this. So they come before the Lord. And then the way that it develops over time is that the people, all the people gathered there, make these responses to the Lord, not just the particular farmers. And then what, here's what they say. A wandering Aramean was my father. And he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who's among you. So it includes everybody in the land. It's not just for the Israelites. It includes the Levites, and it also includes the sojourners in the land. And what's the point of this first fruits harvest uh, ritual that they're to do? Well, it's to ensure that they never lose track of the, of the reality that they wouldn't have any of the things that they have without God giving them the land and then giving the increase of the land. It's intended to keep them focused on him and remembering their history, which they do at all the festivals. They're recounting history at every festival. It, that's a, The point of it is to bring forward the history that the fathers went through and to remember these things, and they're remembering those things because of the great works of God to get them where they are, that they would have the prosperity and the freedoms that they have. And so it's important for them to do this. And so what they would do is is that that as soon as they kept close watch on all the things that would produce uh, fruit and vegetables— particularly. And and what they would do is as soon as they saw a bud, they would tie a little thing onto that bud on that particular plant. And, and that way they knew that's the first one. And so when it's ready, we'll take it and we'll, we'll go up to Jerusalem with this thing. It's important that they do that. And, and so it, the, the entirety of the process, beginning with closely watching things that are budding, is focusing their mind and their attention on God and his goodness all the way through this entire ritual, and then they come together and they worship, and they worship that they do live in a land flowing with milk and honey, with abundant produce. And so that's the intention of this particular commandment and festival. And it's a corrective 
to the idea that Moses is really concerned about in Deuteronomy 8 when he says, when you come into the land, I know what's going to happen. You're going to forget, and you're going to say, my, my mighty arm and my own um, intellect have gotten me everything that I have. And, and this is the corrective for that. And it's, it, and it's a legitimate corrective, not just for the people of Israel, but for all human beings everywhere, because we're all the same. We all participated in the fall. We all tend not to be thankful. We tend to believe in ourselves more than we believe in him. And it begins right at the beginning, because it's a, it would have been a corrective for Cain, who, when he brings a sacrifice, brings some of the, the stuff, as opposed to his brother Abel, who brings the firstborn of the best of the flocks. He knew how to worship. Cain grudgingly worshipped. You know, and so that this process is intended to imbue all of life with the idea that, that all this stuff comes from God. And it, and it should be a joy to give him the first fruits. Same with the tithe, by the way. <laughs> because absent God giving you the talent, the intellect, the ability, and all that, and also the opportunity, you don't have anything to tithe. So the fact that you have anything at all is completely down to him because he, he created you. In his image, he knows you and he gave you all that you have. Everything you have is because of God's good creation of you and the opportunities that he's given you along the way to make the most of what you've been given. So don't take the attitude of Cain, this grudging kind of uh, idea of, of, well, you know, I've worked the land and and I've gotten some produce out of it. And probably somewhere along the way, you had something to do with it. So here's some stuff. Thanks. By the way, can you do it again next year? And so this is the corrective for that. Because it starts with the belief, the complete belief that these crops will grow. <laughs> and then it says that that's all thanks to God that any of this stuff grew and that it produced. And so what they would do is there were seven kinds of produce. I'm not going to go into all of them right now because it doesn't serve any particular purpose. That they said were associated specifically with the giving of this land. And remember that, that the curse on the land is part of the reason that, that Cain was probably grudgingly giving him something because the land was cursed. And so he chose to be a tiller of the land. He chose the harder path. Abel tended the flocks. And so there, there's a, a symbiotic relationship there that's not as harmed as the land. And so here, though, in the land, they're essentially going back to the garden. God's prepared a new garden for his people to inhabit, one that, that will abundantly produce so long as they remain faithful to him. And so we get this, this idea of it, it, there should be rejoicing and celebration. And that's only true if you know and believe right from the start that God's going to do what he said he would do. And so you mark these first things off because you know there's going to be more. There's going to be plenty. But the problem then becomes plenty is not enough. You know, we see the, the, the idea of that constantly over and over and over. And we tend not to be thankful for things anymore because it's not enough. Somebody else has got a little more. And so, it, you know, we we got to work a little harder. And then so now we're going to decide, well, that's it's, it's our effort that produced this more that we have. But then there's somebody else that has more than you do no matter how far you go. And so it's constant issue of being thankful. It's a constant issue of remembering what came before and the work that God had done. And I think in America right now, we, we've gotten away from the idea of, of any of this. 
I mean, we, we just believe that we uh, deserve it. You know, we deserve God's blessing and we don't. We don't deserve God's blessing at all. Um, but I, we were watching something this week. It was on Prime Video, actually. It's a documentary about uh, George Washington. And I think it's called The First American or something like that. Um, but what, what was astounding to me was, was that man's character. I mean, he, he willingly took on the leadership of the army, and he was away from home for the next seven and a half years. Everybody else who signed the declaration, they went back home and went back to their lives. He lived on a horse for about the next seven and a half years while the Revolutionary War was being fought. He was away from his family, away from his home that he loved. And, and the crazy thing we were looking at, the, the guys who crossed the Delaware, right? So the guys who go in after the crossing of the Delaware, they go and they march in the snow for many miles to get to their objective. And here's something I bet you didn't know. Many, many of them had no shoes. And it was easy to trace where the army had been because of the blood from these men's feet. And it just made me weep that we take all these things for granted. And so it's, it's important for us to remember our history. It's important specifically for us to remember that the Lord did all this. It was interesting because of all the founding fathers, George Washington, he might not have been the most religious guy in the world, but he honestly believed against all the others who were mostly just products of the Enlightenment that George Washington believed. He believed that success came from the Lord. And that that was the only way it was going to happen. The others poo-pooed those kinds of ideas, but, but Washington lived it, and he believed it all his life, that America was that city set on a hill. And, and what we need to do is restore that glory. And the only way we can do that is by doing exactly what they say here, which is to be thankful for all things, to always give thanks to the Lord and ascribe to him the glory due to his name. And that's what Jesus does in this gospel lesson. It's Luke 4, 1 to 13. Jesus uh, is full of the Holy Spirit after the baptism. He returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, just straight up tempted by the devil. Um, and he ate nothing during those days. So he did a 40-day fast. And I've said this before. There are two other people in the Bible who we see doing 40-day fast, and those are Moses and Elijah. And remember last week, the transfiguration? Mm -hmm. Same two guys. Moses did it at least twice. Um, and so when those 40 days were ended, Luke tells us, Jesus was hungry. And so the devil sees this as an opportune moment. There's a need and, and a desire. Sort of like in the garden, there's a desire. So Jesus, the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, you hear that? If you're the son of God, prove yourself. If you're the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Do a trick for me. Do something useful, right? You, you could do it. If you're the son of God, you can turn a stone into bread, surely. Do a trick. And Jesus responds, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting scripture. He's going to quote scripture in every single one of these, and it's all coming straight out of Deuteronomy. It's not bread that's the most important thing. Remember, when he goes to Samaria and meets the Samaritan woman at the well, the disciples go away to get food. They come back, and, and they ask Jesus to eat something, and he said, I have bread you don't know anything about. And they're just so confused. Did somebody bring him food while we were gone? No, it's literally he's feeding on the Lord. And it's, it's the, when you're doing that kind of ministry, it doesn't matter. It, hunger go, just goes away. 
You don't think about those things. It's not, it's not about the body. It's not about meeting the needs of the body. No, it's, it's obedience to the Father. If I need something, he'll provide it. That's his attitude. And it's important that we do that. And, and it, Jesus says, you know, it's just simple as that. Man shall not live by bread alone. Now let's move on to something else, right? And then there's another time. When this, because what we hear at the end of this is that that Satan departed from Jesus until an opportune time. So, so turn these stones into bread. So, in John six, what we see is Jesus feeds the five thousand there, and then they follow him the next day. And he says, "You you only followed me because your bellies were full. You you didn't follow me because of the signs you'd seen. You didn't you didn't get the meaning of what happened." And so what do they do? Well, they propose the same basic thing. If you're the son of God, if you want to be somebody, if you, th- if, if you want us to believe that you're the Messiah, then you'll, you know, Moses provided manna in the wilderness. So they're, they're suggesting, yep, if you want to do something useful, if you want to prove yourself, if you want us to believe in you, then do this. Well, it's the same temptation. It's posed by people. And that's the thing is that Satan directly tempts Jesus here, but in the uh, but. But then later, throughout the rest of his life, these same temptations recycle themselves, but they're in the mouths of people. And so Jesus is willing to let all those people walk that day because, rather than do their bidding. So even when he was at the top of the world, here he's by himself. There he's got a, several thousand people with him, and he won't do it then either. He's willing to, to say the crowds don't matter, only the Father matters. And so you see these temptations playing out throughout his life. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. In other words, poof, here it is. And, um, and he said to him, to you, I'll give all this authority in their glory, for it's been delivered to me. And I give it to him whom I will. If you then will worship me, it'll be yours. They belong to him. Right? He is the ruler of this world. Jesus says that. Jesus affirms, now the ruler of the world is, is coming. And so the, he does control this world, but we live in a different kingdom. We live in God's kingdom. If, we're in, if we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're raised above these desires and these things. It, no. <laughs> it, the, the Holy Spirit's given to us to, to help us in times of temptation if we'll just lean on him, if we'll recognize that. So he shows him all these things and says, if you'll bow down and worship me, then you can have all that. And Jesus answered him, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God. And him only shall you serve. Yet, no, I I don't want anything other than to please him. And he said, worship him only. So I'm not going to worship you. And it's sort of the same temptation that Peter poses to Jesus when Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan, right? Because he has just asked, who do men say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter makes his confession. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And then immediately Jesus begins to talk about his death on the cross. And, and Peter rebukes him. And then because it's a public rebuke, Jesus then has to publicly rebuke Peter in front of the other disciples. And he knows when he says, get behind me, Satan, it's this temptation. It's the temptation to have the kingdom without the cross. And it would certainly be a great temptation. Jesus actually prays in the garden. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. You know, it, so... Nobody. He didn't want to suffer the crucifixion. He didn't want to go through all that, but it was necessary, and he knew it. And so when Peter offered him the kingdom without the cross, then it sounded to Jesus exactly like this temptation. You can have everything without the cross if you'll bow down and worship me. You don't have to go through all that stuff. 
And then finally, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you're the son of God, here we go again, if you're the son of God, <clears throat> throw yourself down from here, for it's written. He'll, so he's going to quote scripture to Jesus now. It's written, hey, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what does that one sound like? To me, it sounds like when he's at the cross, you saved others, now save yourself. If you're who you say you are, then come down. It's a temptation to, to put God to the test, to not endure suffering. And it's so common. I mean, we don't we we have a poor theology of suffering. I, I talked to a friend of mine this week, and she's in a small group at a, a, a church here in the area where we live. She's in Hendersonville. So in the small group, the guy who leads the small group, a wonderful guy, wonderful Christian. His wife has been suffering for a long time, like three years now, with this botched hip operation that she had, and she's just just miserable. And, and she's ready to give up, and, and he's struggling. So my friend wrote him a, a, a note and said, I want you to understand what a great witness you've been to all of us in this small group in the way that, that you all have persevered in your faith, and you've persevered through this difficult time. It's been a, a, an inspiration to me to see the way that you all have handled suffering. I know it's hard, but your faith, in the Lord has never wavered. The, your faith in the goodness of God and the greatness of God has never wavered in that time, and it's been an enormous inspiration. Thank you. It's important, this, this idea of suffering, and, and yet we, we want to avoid it, and, and so we want to test God and say, you know, will you do this? Keep me from suffering. And it, No, and Jesus says, no, don't put the Lord your God to the test. If he tells you to do it, then do it, but, but don't do it to test his love and his greatness. It's, you know, thinking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that when they come before Nebuchadnezzar because they failed to worship the idol that he had created, he says, look, I've already said, did you not hear that um, I'll throw you into the fiery furnace if you refuse to do this? And they said, yeah, we get that. We understand that completely. But here's the deal. Our God's able to deliver us from that. But if not... We're still going to worship him, and we're not going to bow down and worship that idol. They know that he's able to do it, but they're not going to test his love. They're willing to suffer the punishment of that fiery furnace simply because they believe in him, and they believe in his goodness and his greatness, no matter what the outcome in this life is. They, they, they were pointed themselves toward that greater reward, towards his kingdom, and they weren't going to compromise their ability to participate in that kingdom by bowing down and worshiping Nebuchadnezzar's idol, no matter what that meant. And so they weren't going to go there and do that. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And as I said, the opportune time, it doesn't look like face-to-face -face with Satan. No, he puts those temptations in the mouths of those other people. Now, the, I think what Jesus says to Peter is really instructive in that, because when he says, get behind me, Satan, he's acknowledging who the speaker is. He's speaking through Peter. doesn't mean that Peter is um, in any way inhabited by Satan. No, he, he's, we all have the potential to cooperate with Satan's plans when we 
when we got ready to go to Rwanda several years ago, when I, when I went to, uh, to test, to see what the, to do the budget and everything, when I went there before I left, I had several people come to me and say, John, you know, I, I'm really concerned about you going to Rwanda because it was only a few years after the genocide and it was a dangerous place. All the NGOs had pulled out of there. The Red Cross wasn't even there. Oxfam wasn't there. So I got ready to go and they said, you know, I'm comforted by the idea that if God called you there, then, then it, it'll be okay. That's one of those, you don't really understand the cross. <laughs> you, you don't understand Paul's life. You don't understand the, the martyrs. God can call you to a place where you lose your life and where you suffer. There's, there's tons and tons of stories of Christian missionaries who, who were called, absolutely called. And then they were martyred. And so it's important that we understand that, that suffering is part of this life. It just is. You know, it's, it's a world broken by sin. If the, the kingdom you have in mind, when you criticize the way things are and say, would a good God do this, is, the, is his kingdom. It, he let us have this kingdom, and we messed it up. And so we suffer with the consequences of that. The whole world groans in anticipation of the revelation of the sons of God to release it from its bondage of sin. And so we've got to realize the kind of world we actually live in is not the intention of God, and it's not the world we will live in. The world you have in mind is the world you will live in, and it'll be like a million times better. It's important that we navigate this life by keeping our eyes fixed on the next and always seeing that's more important and giving thanks to him for everything. We have to live lives of worship. We have to live lives that say, Lord, what do you want? I know what I want, but I need to know what you want before I pursue this, before I embark on this next thing in my life. In, in Paul's letter to the Romans here, he's gone, he, he goes through about 11 chapters in Romans of convicting the world of sin, no matter who you are, Jew or Gentile, whether you're a believer or not a believer. What he says to, to non-believers is you should be because you have the witness of creation before your eyes. And that should tell you a lot. And then that should move you to seek him. And then he, he says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what do we deserve? What's the penalty for sin? Death. Jesus died in this life, but he lives forever because he passed through this world without sin. So when God says to um, uh, Adam and Eve, if you eat of that tree in that day, you will surely perish and, and so Adam sees that Eve didn't, so he's got a liar. Well, they ultimately do die. But, but then the hope in believing in him is resurrection. And so, so Jews believe in the resurrection, except for the Sadducees. Um, and so that they, they believe that they'll all participate in the life of the world to come in spite of sin. But they don't have the security surety that we have because of Jesus' resurrection. We know it. It's like, I've I've used this before, I'm sure Mark Twain sometime was asked about, did he believe in infant baptism? And his response was, believe in it. I've seen it. And that's the way we as Christians should feel about the resurrection. We should have a certain hope in the resurrection because of the resurrection of Jesus. And we just have to settle in our minds, that's true. It's an historical fact that was witnessed by many. So we can believe in that. Because they're witnesses. And the Gospels and Paul's letters were written in the lifetimes of people who could have said, that's nonsense, that's a lie. That didn't happen. Those things didn't happen, the Gospels. 
account to us. It, but, they, but they wrote them at the same time that there were people who could dispute these things. So when, when Paul comes here, he's wrapping up his argument here beginning in the 10th chapter. He says, Moses writes about the righteousness based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, don't say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that's to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And that's just direct quotes without Christ in it <laughs> from Deuteronomy 30. He said, well, what does it say? The word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Can it get simpler? Than that? Can it get clearer than that? You've got to profess it with your mouth and believe it in your heart. And, and then that flows out into your life. And you live a life based on those truths. Your life is centered around those truths. That's what it's intended to do. We're supposed to have such confidence in those truths that we live a life that's different from the other people around us. We have different priorities. We have different goals and aspirations. We look at everything in a different way. Because we know he is in charge and that we know Christ has been raised from the dead. And therefore, because of his sacrifice on the cross for our sins and his resurrection from the dead, we know our sins are forgiven and we have eternal life in his name. And that's as simple as that. That's Paul, all Paul's saying. Have that kind of confidence. Have that much confidence that your whole life is changed by those truths. Believe them wholeheartedly. I'm not saying that's easy. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit to do that. But if we persevere... Then, then we will have that surety. He says, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one, mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. And, and there's no distinct, he's already established that there's no, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek because we're all sinners, saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He says, There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Paul, I've said this a million times, Paul's the most converted man that ever lived. He, everything he believed before about the supremacy of Judaism and righteousness according to the law, he says, ah, it's filthy rags and it's nonsense. It's nonsense. God gives his spirit the way he chooses. and It doesn't have anything to do with Jew or Greek. <clears throat> he says, the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches, that's his mercy and his grace, on all who call on him. And then sums it up, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We need to be so confident in the things that we know. We need to know that those truths are absolute, period, end of sentence, drop-dead truths. That Jesus died on the cross for my sins. He took the penalty. He took my death on him, and then he gives me his life. He takes my sin, and he gives me his righteousness. And so when I stand before the Lord, I can stand there with confidence because I'm covered in the blood of Jesus, and I know that his sacrifice was acceptable because he raised him from the dead. And then that gives me strength, and it gives me hope, and it fixes my eyes on the real kingdom, the real prize. And it hopefully allows me to be better at seeing through these temptations and seeing, no, 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 no. Nope. That takes me away from him. And that's the last thing I want anything in my life to do is to take me away from him. We need to know his greatness and his goodness. We need to know of his depth of his loves for us, that he sent his son to die for us. And then we need to live for him. It's easy to say. 
It's hard to do. It requires a lot of prayer, and it requires us to stay in his word.